And as you turn there, I'll give the uh, announcements. Uh, first of all, on Tuesday, we'd be happy if you'd gather uh, with us at 6.30. Uh, we're going to just have a simple retelling of the celebration of the birth of Jesus, our Savior. Um, there's several families that are um, volunteered to read the story, and we're going to play some songs, and we're also going to just sit and listen to some songs that kind of retell the story. Um, but that said, it's a, a real time of warm fellowship and just kind of gets our hearts right on the night that so many people were interacting with, you know, like I think about this, what we're going to read today about Mary being approached by Gabriel. And then I think about these shepherds who were really kind of looked at uh, wickedly almost like they were worth nothing. And yet God revealed his plan of salvation to them before the city of Jerusalem even got to hear it, um, other than in the prophets. And so, you know, just all the people that were interacting and learning the story uh, as it was taking place and who God was revealing it to. Um, so that said, um, it's, an, it's an exciting thing and it's an, exci- an exciting night we'll have. So then um, also, um, just want to remind you about the possible trip to Zambia in early August. Uh, if anybody's interested, please let us know. And uh, that said, I, that's all the announcements we have. In this busy time of year, we can use a little less announcement and a little more rest, right? So that said, um, turn in your Bibles to Luke 1, and as we get there, we're going to begin with a birth announcement. So I put there for you on the screen kind of some of the creative ways that we come up with to tell our families, hey, by the way, you're going to be grandparents, or by the way, you're going to be an uncle or an aunt. And I have there for you uh, these creative ways. I love this one on the left. Jingle bells, jingle bells, baby on the way, you know, like... Uh, I love that because we get very creative in the way that we tell people exciting news, right? And, and it's good. There are things in this life that we really should spend more time celebrating. Um, but the reality is um, God gave birth announcements, and what, as creative as he is, he is the creator of all the universe. And what he did was he sent one of his servants to tell the news to another one of his servants. And so the angel Gabriel is sent from heaven, from the very presence of God, and he's sent to a human being. And I love this because it's just this, this coming down to earth begins with a messenger who says, God is coming. And, and we know from the story in Luke that it, this wasn't the first announcement. We know that God's been announcing this from Genesis, that he's going to send the seed of the woman to bruise the head of Satan, to deal with this whole broken fellowship with God that came through temptation in the garden. And so uh, we're beginning in Luke this week because Christmas, but also we're between books. By God's providence, we finished 1 John. Uh, Some of you might be thinking, finally. And some of you might be thinking, let's go to 2 John. But in the the meantime, as a pastor, I, I really like the way that we do things. We go to the next chapter. And so I don't ever have to spend time praying about, what do I teach next? Um, but that said, it, was, it kind of stretched me this week, and the Lord led me to Luke chapter 1. And of course, there's a big, long piece of the story that's all about Jesus' advent. And yet I wanted to focus on this one story, because if you want to listen to Luke 1 all the way through Luke chapter 2 that we're going to read on Christmas Eve, I've taught it in years past, maybe over four-week series 
series is series. But that said, I, I did that intentionally to prepare us for Christmas. But this year, I kind of stepped back and I just kept teaching what we were in. And now we're going to sit down and look at just a piece of the story and focus in on uh, this royal birth announcement. So if you read with me, we'll start in verse 26 this morning. It says, In the sixth month of the angel Gabriel was sent, excuse me, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, what does he mean in the sixth month? Well, the sixth month, if the context of this passage, is the sixth month that is Elizabeth, the, relate, the relative of Mary, is already with child, which means nothing to you unless you understand that she had been called barren her entire life. She was not able to conceive. And so in her barrenness, God visited her late in life and said, I'm going to give you a child. He's going to be a son. He's going to be a Nazarite from the womb. He's actually going to be the, the forerunner of Jesus. But what we find out is that he's really only about six months older than Jesus. And so a forerunner doesn't necessarily have to be somebody that was 600 years in advance, kind of like Isaiah. This was a closer forerunner. And what we'll find out is that this son that was given to Elizabeth and Zechariah will actually be what Jesus says, the best prophet that ever lived. I don't know about you, but how cool would that be to have said of your son, he's the greatest prophet that's ever been known. And so here we have in the sixth month of her pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph to the house of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And having come, in the angel said to her rejoice highly favored one the lord is with you blessed are you among women but when she saw him she was troubled at his saying and she considered what manner of greeting this was then the angel said to her don't be afraid for you have found favor with god so the delivery method is what we would call unconventional we have gabriel the angel now, every time you see an angel in Scripture, it's not like one of these little precious moments angels. Every time you see it, it says that the person that the angel approaches is terrified. And then the angel always has to say to the person, don't be afraid. And so if, you, if you're trying to picture what an angel looks like, I think it's a little overwhelming. I think it's a little terrifying. And it should be. These are angels that are in the presence of God. They represent God. And yet what she does is she listens to what he has to say. So the recipient is a betrothed virgin named Mary. Now, how was she chosen? Verse 30 says she's found favor, or your word in the Greek might be grace. She found grace in God's sight. Now, this is important because one of the things that gets taught is that Mary was sinless. She was not. She was a human being like you and I. And yet she found favor in the sight of the Lord. And where else we see this in Scripture, one example that it makes me think of is Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, where it says, Noah, in the days of all the wickedness and evil that he lived in, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, when he found grace in the eyes of the Lord, we find that God decided to reveal his plan of salvation 
to Noah. What was the plan of salvation? An ark. He built an arky, arky, as the songs say. And, and that ark was the plan to deliver all that would believe and trust in this plan of salvation in the days of Noah. Anyone who did not trust in the ark would be literally flooded and judged with the whole earth. And yet Mary, in the same boat, if you will, found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and she was, had revealed to her the plan of salvation for the entire world. Now, put yourself in Mary's shoes, because you are. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says that God has saved us by grace through faith, not of our works, lest anyone should boast, just like Mary. It wasn't her works that found her favor. God chose her. By grace through faith, she received this plan of salvation, just like you and I. And guess what? We get to deliver it to the world. We get to be messengers. We get to be a part of that plan of salvation. And we don't have to build a boat. God provided his son as the ark. And so that said, she was chosen because God chose her. That's it. And she found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God saw her. He saw her life. He saw her character and said, I want to use this woman. So her instructions, number one, rejoice. Number two, don't be afraid. Number three, name him Jesus. Now what's in a name? You've probably heard a message on that. What's in a name? Well, we find out is that the, the name that he was named was actually common in his day. Yahashua or Yeshua. And the pieces are Yah, short for Yahweh, which was the covenant name that Israel knew God by. The Tetragrammaton, Google it. I don't explain it today. But it's basically, they saw the name of God as so holy, so other, so perfect, they wouldn't even write down the whole thing because they believed it was too holy to be said. So they actually, in the Old Testament, if you see the word Lord, and it's all capitalized, it was Y-H-W-H, and that was Yahweh. And they inserted some vowels to make it to be able to be pronounced. But the point is, is that Yah was the first, the prefix, the Lord, the covenant Lord, the God of Jacob. Not just any Lord, but the Lord. And then Shua, from Yeshua, or Joshua in the Old Testament, to save or to rescue. So put those together and we get the Lord, our salvation. The Lord, he is our savior. The Lord, he is our rescuer. Why? Because we need saved. We need rescued. And so this plan of salvation unfolding right before Mary's eyes, and he's telling of the plan of salvation. He says, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, or look, make ready your eyes. You will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. This is Gabriel proclaiming the truth. You will. Now, the question that Mary's going to come up with here is, how? But she doesn't get a chance to ask yet because, but wait, there's more. It's like watching Ronco commercials. You know, set it and forget it. But wait, there's more. If you act now, you can buy 32 of them for the price of one. 
because they're obviously awesome. You'll never need one again, but here's 32. I think they're going to break. But when God makes this promises, this promise, there's promises attached to it. He says, here comes the Savior. Rejoice. Don't be afraid. Name him Jesus. His name is attached to what he's going to do in his mission. And then he says, verse 32, he will be great. Now, if you've ever gotten a birth announcement, you know that that's what the, the parents are always implying. Here comes my kid. He's going to be great. She's going to be great. And we all believe that about our kids. They're going to be the next Nolan Ryan. They're going to be the next you know, CEO. They're going to be awesome. Best thing since sliced bread. But in this promise, Gabriel says something that is already true. He's going to be great. He already is great. He's God. And so he says, he will be great, verse 32. He also says in the same verse, he will be called son of the highest. Now, interesting because people say the Bible never says that Jesus was God. How can he be the son of God and not be God? How can he be anything other than God himself? And then he says he will be heir to King David's throne. Now, wait a minute. For years, there's not been a king on David's throne. How can that be possible? Well, his lineage is still being taken care of. Read the beginning of Matthew, and you see this genealogy pop out of nowhere. What's well, the genealogy that shows that here we have the Son of God. He's related to the King David. And if you go back far enough, even in Luke's account, you see that he's related to Adam. From the very beginning, this genealogy and all the genealogies, I know they're boring. I know that it's like, why am I reading this? Why, I know that when you read it, you're like, why does it matter who begot who? But it's tracing the lineage of the Messiah back to King David, back to Abraham, and then back to Adam himself, the first man, the first man that jacked it all up, the first man that failed to be perfect. He couldn't be. He was man, made out of dust. And yet the Holy Spirit conceives and Mary produces the second Adam. And the second Adam fulfills everything perfectly and becomes the salvation that we need. And so he will be an heir to King David's throne. Well, let's look at 2 Samuel. If you've got your Bibles out, turn to 2 Samuel 7. Let's go back to something where God promised to David something very specific. Now in David's day, David was the king and he took the kingdom from Saul. God gave it to him. And then David becomes a king and there's all kinds of problems in his life. But in 2 Samuel 7, we find some promises that God made to David. In verse 12, he says, David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, that's a really nice way to say, David, when you die, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, the question I have for you is, that is that prophecy about Solomon, who was king's son, who, who's David's son, who came after him, or is that prophecy about Jesus? And my answer to you that some of you won't like is yes. It's about Solomon and it's about Jesus. Because if you'll notice in verse 12, 
He says, when your days are fulfilled and you go to be with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. And the king that becomes the next king, the next inheritor of the, the throne will be Solomon. And I will establish his kingdom. And that was Solomon. In the days of David, there was a kingdom full of battles and war and bloodshed. And when Solomon comes around, you'll notice that all of a sudden there's this peace. There's this rest. There's time to build a temple for worship. And Solomon, even though he was a complete mess, if you look at his life, you read Proverbs, you read Ecclesiastes, there's a mess. Guy had a thousand women involved in his life. And I'm not saying that his life was a mess because of the women. I'm saying he made some really bad decisions. And yet what we find is that Solomon was a king of peace. During the time of his reign, there was peace and he had wisdom far beyond anyone that had ever been born. And I submit to you, he had more wisdom than anybody that's ever been born other than Jesus. And yet, verse 13, he says, he shall build a house for my name, for my character, for my kingdom, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I love that because we all know that Solomon died. So how can a throne be established forever unless there's a king to sit on it forever, an eternal kingdom? So he was talking about Solomon, but he was also talking about the Messiah. And we know this because in Isaiah chapter 9, if you turn there, in verse 6, of course this is a a verse that you'll see on Christmas cards. It's a verse that you'll see uh, shared on Facebook. It's a verse that is very important for Christmas time. But in verse 6 of Isaiah 9, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And that's the gift that we celebrate. I heard someone say this week, why do we give Christmas gifts? And I would submit to you, hopefully our motivation to give gifts is because we have been given the gift. We give because he gave. And so the government will be upon his shoulder. I don't care what your leaning is, but our government ultimately will fail at some point, depending on which side kills it. Who knows? Probably both. But ultimately, the government of the world will be upon the shoulders of Jesus. His name will be called Wonderful. His name will be called Counselor. His name will be called Mighty God everlasting father, prince of peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That's a promise. And so we're seeing this fulfillment in the birth of Jesus. And if you turn to Romans, you don't have to, but in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, Paul picks up on this. And as he's beginning his letter to the Romans, he establishes it based on this. Verse 3, Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. And so Jesus was born according to the flesh, as a descendant of David, which it, a lineage is important. 
Not just anybody sits on the throne. It depends on what family you're born into. Go to England. Even the, the throne there was established based on a royal line. And if you were not from that line, you could get nowhere close to that throne, let alone sit on it. And so he will be the heir to King David's throne. This is what Mary, a woman, is being told, that her son will be great. Her son will be called the Son of God. Her son will be heir to, God, uh, to King David's throne. Her son will have his throne be anointed by God, so he will be chosen for it, and his throne will be an eternal throne and kingdom. Of his rule will be no end. That's never been said of any kingdom. We hope for that, right? We hope our family will never end. We hope our lives will never end. But the reality is this kingdom will never end. So in verse 3, excuse me, 33, he says this, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And, and we see this in Hebrews 1, verse 8 through 12. The writer of Hebrews, which uh, is controversial, but I believe is Paul, wrote down this, and he quoted Psalm 45, verse 6 through 7. To the Son, God says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, if you were going to be a king in the days of Israel, if the prophet came up to you and anointed you, poured oil over your head, you wouldn't be angry. You wouldn't be mad. You would actually be really blessed because that was a sign that you were chosen by God. And verse 10, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. Speaking of the heavens, you remain and they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You, God, will fold them up and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will not fail or end. And so there's these promises written in Psalm 45, and then the second section was Psalm 102, verse 25 through 27. But all these promises are about the kingdom that is anointed and is eternal. Interestingly enough, this is not the only, this is not an exhaustive list. Scripture is full of these promises and these prophecies. But if you turn to Daniel chapter 2, many of us will know from Bible story books, or if you've spent any time in the Old Testament, Daniel's a favorite. But as Daniel is there in Babylon, because the Israelites had been taken off to captivity, there was a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was famous for a lot of good things and a lot of bad things. But he had this vision during the days of Daniel of this kingdom that was described based on this statue made of various materials. And Daniel, being in his cabinet or his wisdom uh, group at the time, he said, hey, I need you to help me interpret this dream. And they said, what's the dream? And he goes, I'm not going to tell you because if you really are able to interpret it, you'll be able to tell me what the dream is too. So Daniel, being the only prophet of God in the nation at the time, he seeks the living God, the only living God, and says, 
this man that you created had a dream. Help me interpret it so I can show him your power. So he listens to the Lord, and the Lord gives him vision, gives him the dream, gives him the interpretation. And in the middle of this interpretation, we hear about Jesus. Imagine that. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, he's telling him about this statue and about all these kingdoms that will come after King Nebuchadnezzar dies. And the statue's made out of all these materials to prophetically tell them what the kingdoms that come after him will look like, how their reigns will begin, how they will end. And at the very end of it all, in verse 44, it says, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all the kingdoms that came before it, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God is made, has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. This dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure." So, even the Gentiles knew about the kingdom that was coming. They had been exposed to it by the prophecy of Daniel. Interestingly enough, if you think about the wise men, if you think about them coming from Orientar, and if you think about them traveling so far, like how did they know about this king that was coming to be born? How did they know about the rising star that they would follow? I submit to you, it was Daniel and his influence on the wise men that were in the cabinet of Babylon. And he left behind him the teaching and the interpretation in the Old Testament scriptures. And because of that, these wise men were wise because they knew a servant of the Most High God. So when they show up on the scene, they travel so far, it's because they had heard from Daniel, there's going to come this king that will set up his throne, and his kingdom will last forever. So that takes faith, right? And so that said, that was just kind of a a little uh, rabbit trail. So back to our story. Mary has revealed to her, your son's going to be the son of the most high God. He will be great. He'll be an heir to David's kingdom. And his throne will be anointed and eternal. So what what does she ask? She has a pretty humble response. How can this be? How can this be? And that's what you and I would ask if an angel came and told us that. How is this even possible? But she asks this. Her reason for asking this question was, how can this be since I? Has God ever shown you something that he wants to do in your life? And your first question many times might be this. How can that be? Because I have not. Moses in the wilderness, God reveals himself to him in a burning bush. And he says, what? I want you to go and deliver my people. I want you to speak to the Pharaoh. And Moses' response, how can this be? For I have not. I can't speak well. I got a speech impediment. Right? That's our response to when God says, this will happen. And we go, how is that possible? Now, I will submit to you that this is not like the response that Satan gave to Eve in the garden. She said, I can't eat of the fruit of that tree. And Satan says, 
has God really said? Are you sure? He's questioning God. I don't believe that Mary was questioning God. I believe she was saying, how's that possible because of my hindering you? And so how can this be? She's saying, wow, not, yeah, right. That's not possible. God's not big enough. She's just saying, like, how is that possible? I'm a virgin. You're telling me I'm going to conceive, and yet I've not known a man intimately. What's interesting about that is in Israel, if you were betrothed to someone, it wasn't like when you and I get engaged to our spouse. It wasn't like our nation and the way that we do things. If you were engaged to somebody, in order to get unengaged, you would actually have to go through divorce proceedings because you were legally married at that time. There was no looking around. There was no getting it out out of it easily. You'd chosen to love them before there was ever any anything else. And so she says, how can this be? Now, my question for you as I pondered this passage, is she just asking it about the, the conception or is she asking it about verse 32 through 33 that we looked at? How can a child of mine be a descendant of David? How can a child of mine be great? How can a child of mine be on a throne that lasts forever? I mean, that's big stuff she just got promised and told. So how can this be? I think we usually get caught up on the whole, how can a virgin conceive? And I think that's a good question. Don't get me wrong. That's why it was going to be a sign. It wouldn't be a sign if, behold, you're going to have a baby. Well, that makes sense. I just got, you know, we're getting married. That, that could happen. No, you're going to conceive before you consummate. Oh, wow, that, that's a sign. That doesn't happen every day. And so the reason for the question that in her mind is, I've not known a man. And isn't that interesting? Because when God tells us he's going to do something great, the first response many times that we have is, yeah, but I, that's not possible. I haven't done X, Y, or Z. That's not possible because I'm me. If we're humble, I think that should be our response. That God would even reveal himself to us at all, that he would use you and I as part of his eternal kingdom and plan that he would use you and I as a mouthpiece to speak life into somebody's life at all should seem impossible. Because I don't know about you, but I spent most of my life speaking death and living for death and enjoying the things that lead to death. So the fact that God could use us at all, especially to do something eternal, is amazing. How can this be since I've not known a man? And if you look in your own time in Genesis 3, verse 15, the first time that God said he would produce and provide a Savior was when he told Satan, the tempter, I'm going to provide the seed of the woman and you are going to have war between, between you, Satan, the seed, your seed, and her seed. And that woman is going to produce a child that's going to bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. He will crush your head, you will bruise his heel. So he's going to destroy you, and yet at the same time, he will be bruised by you. And I think that that points to this crucifixion, that Jesus came and provided salvation through death on the cross for our sins, 
And yet he was bruised. Isaiah chapter 53 says he was bruised for our iniquities. His stripes, by his stripes, by his flesh being ripped, by his body being marred beyond recognition, we are healed. Through his sacrifice, we are given life. And so that said, all she can see is what she would do to limit because she had not. And yet what God says to her through Gabriel here is, you have not, but I will. You have not, but I will. So in verse 35, read that with me in Luke chapter 1. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. I love this. Verse 35, the Trinity. Did you see that? She says, I have not, and he says, yes, I will. And I love that because he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest, the power of the Father, God the Father, will overshadow you. Everything that you can't do, the power of the highest will do. And then, therefore, as a result of that, the Holy One who is to be born will be. The, the, I know what you didn't do, but the, the one who is to be born will be. Therefore, what God wills will be. He will be the Son of God. And then you'll name him, just like I told you. And so then, if that weren't enough, he says, here's what I'm going to do. He gives her an example of what he has already done. Verse 36, he says, Your relative, Elizabeth, who was known as barren, who was not able to conceive on her own, has, he's, she's, she's carrying a child. And his name will be John the Baptist. Well, we'll call him John the Baptist. His name's going to be John. But my point is, verse 36, Indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. How many times have you heard of somebody in their old age conceiving? And what do we do? We, we put them in the like high-at-risk pregnancy, right? And then we send them to special doctors, and we give extra vitamins, and we do all this stuff. They didn't do that. Because it was God who said, I'm going to do something that's not common. I'm going to do what in Elizabeth and Zechariah's life, they had already resolved to the fact that this thing was impossible. And then he says in verse 37, for with God, nothing will be impossible. Nothing. I love this. Because Gabriel didn't have to explain himself to her. And yet she asked a question in humility, said, how can this be? For I've not known a man. He says, here's what I'm going to do. And here's what I've already done. And therefore, with God, nothing will be impossible. And there's a few examples. Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. Abraham and Sarah had been barren. And yet God said he was going to make a, a nation out of them. And yet in her old age, we're not talking 35 we're not talking 45. When she was nearing a hundred, a hundred. I don't know if I want to live that long. That's painful sounding. There's some days where 36 sounds painful to me. But my point is, when she was in her 90s, 
Many believe a hundreds. She conceived by Abraham and brought forth Isaac. And he says, the Lord of hosts will perform this. Genesis 18, 14. Another story, the resurrection. That's the ultimate impossibility. When life ends, it's over. And yet, the resurrection, and we see Thomas interacting with the resurrected Jesus Christ. And he says, by the disciples tell him, hey, we saw Jesus. He goes, hey, look, <laughs> I get it. You guys are grieving, going through a rough time. But I, unless I see the holes in his hands, and, and unless I see the, the hole, I saw the spear go through his side, like blood and water came gushing out. He was done. He was over. I saw them bury him. Unless I see him with those holes, I'm not going to believe. And yet in John chapter 20, Jesus comes through the wall or something, shows up in the room that they had locked for fear of the Romans, and says, hey, Thomas, you want to touch the holes? And he goes, no, no, I get it. I'm sorry, Lord. He humbles himself. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus reveals himself to a rich man. And, and the man says, hey, how can I inherit eternal life? He says, well, uh, you know the commandments. And he says, yeah, I've, I've already lived those out. I've, I got it. I nailed it. And yet at the end, he goes, okay, this one thing you lack. He says, I, I need you to sell all your stuff and give it to the poor. And he walked away sorrowful. And he looked at his disciples and he said, man, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus said, it is, it's impossible. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And of course, many people interpret that and they go, well, you know, it, there was a gate in Israel where the, the camel, it was really hard for him to go underneath it and they had to get on their knees. And, yeah, but here's my interpretation. You, you know what the, a needle looks like? You know how hard it is to get through a thread through there? And you know how big a camel is? It cannot fit. It is impossible. That's what he's saying. Let's not get too spiritual with it. Like he's talking to fishermen. But my point is he's saying it's impossible. And yet what he says is with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And then one more story, and I'll have you turn to this one. Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verse 14. The story of the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is up on the hill, and Peter says, you know, let me build some tabernacles for you and Elijah and Moses, and we'll just have a gay old time up here. And they're just, you know, he's excited. And, uh, and in the meantime, usually God gives you a mountaintop experience. You see Jesus in all of his glory. Why wouldn't you want to stay there? And yet they got to come down off the mountain. And every, anytime you've ever had a mountaintop experience and you come back down, um, after the transfiguration, they come down and uh, it says, when he had came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him. They greeted him and he asked the scribes, what are you guys discussing with my disciples? And then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit, and wherever, wherever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they couldn't. Verse 19, he answered him and said, 
Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water, trying to destroy my son. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He says, if you can do anything, Jesus, would you please show your mercy? Show compassion. Help us. We can't do anything. So verse 23, Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Now, Every movie we're watching right now, it could be Hallmark Channel, it'd be Polar Express. Every kid in the school district has watched Polar Express, I'm pretty sure, this week. And the whole message is what? Believe. But it depends on what you believe. Believing is not the key to getting whatever you want. It's what you believe in. If I say I believe, and yet I believe in something that cannot save me, then my belief is pretty much pointless. It's in vain. And yet he says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And he's saying in me, in Jesus. And so he said, uh, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, his soul is in anguish because his son is in danger, imminent danger. This spirit is so powerful that it throws him into the water. How many of us, when we're near a body of water, we tell our kids, be careful doesn't matter in this kid's life. He can be as careful as he wants. He's seized by a spirit that throws him into the water. What's within him endangers him or fire. Be careful doesn't matter in this situation. Parents can do all they want. And so he's in anguish. He doesn't know what to do. And he says in tears to the Lord, Lord, I do believe. Please help my unbelief. And I think that's where Mary is. Mary's been told this amazing truth. What's going to happen through this son that comes forth from her virgin womb? And she says, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. And I don't know about you. I am in this spot more often than I'm in the I believe. Let's let it rip. Maybe that's you. So when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed with him greatly, and came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many said, oh no, the boy's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, he lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples came to him privately. Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. So back in Luke. I don't know about you, but I, I just, we see God do impossible things through those who trust in Him. Those who trust in Him. Prayer comes out of a spirit that recognizes I can do nothing without God doing it. Lord, would you please do it? Fasting comes from going, my strength won't deliver me. I need God's strength in my weakness. And I'll even willingly make myself weak so that God's power can be shown in me. And so in this story, we see, we see Mary start from this place of, 
Lord, how can this be since I have not? And she comes to this place of, Lord, I am your servant. Let it be unto me according to your will. And in verse 38, it says, Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So I would ask you this morning, and in this Christmas season, what is God showing you that he wants to do in your life and through it that you keep responding and going, that's cool, Lord, but I have not? Would you be willing to answer, just listen to what he has to show you about his past faithfulness and what he's promised to do presently? And then can you come to this spot where you go, all right, I can't do it, but I'm your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. I can't do it, therefore your power is going to have to do something impossible. But I know that with, all, with you, all things are possible. He made a virgin conceive. He took a, a little boy that suckled at the breast as a baby, as, as one of ours. And he made a powerful thing happen. You and I are sitting here today, 2,000 plus or minus years later, and we are reading about this Jesus who, like a stone dropped into a pond, made a ripple effect so far beyond his years on this earth that you and I are sitting here talking about it. And I don't know about you guys, but my life has been forever changed by someone that I never met physically. I'm a walking testimony, and many of you are as well. God does impossible things for those who will place their faith and trust in Him. You can't do it. Whatever it is that He's going to ask you to do, you can't do it, and you won't be able to do it unless you let Him do it through you. So, Lord Jesus, I'm in awe of Your power, I'm in awe of your might. I'm in awe of your birth. I'm in awe at how ordinary you were. And yet, Lord, when you return, you will not be ordinary. You won't be riding on no donkey. You won't be driving a, a tractor. You will be on a war horse. And you will come and deliver your people practically. You will set up your eternal throne. And every knee will bow. Every mouth will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But until then, help us to trust you in the things that we consider ordinary. Move mountains in each one of our lives. Move mountains in our families. Do the impossible things that we long to see you do, but we don't see how our ordinariness can ever be a piece of that. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon each one of us. Pour out your Spirit upon us as a little church in a little town in the middle of this huge earth. And would you make an impact that shows that we are, in fact, trusting in the only one that can do anything above and beyond what we can ask or think. Would you move mountains in the places that we try to make an impact? Would you change hearts in Zambia? Would you make a, a huge impact in Mormon country in Utah? Lord, would you turn upside down uh, families by backpack impact? 
Would you continue to pour out your spirit upon us in 2020? And would you make us everything we're supposed to be in Christ? And would you turn upside down our school and, and our church and this valley and every valley attached to it? Lord, would you do a work in our day that if you told us right now that we'd respond like Mary, how can this be possible for we have not? And would you show us that it's not up to us, that you will overshadow us, that you will come upon us, that your son Jesus will, will be revealed. Father, we ask it knowing that you can do above and beyond whatever we can't do. And we want to see it in our day. We want to see it in our children. We want to see it in our homes. And we want to see Jesus high and lifted up, which you said when your name is high and lifted up, that you will draw all men unto yourself and there will be salvation sung about from the hilltops. May this be a hilltop where salvation is sung. In Jesus' name, amen.